Welcome back to the Cloth Cultures podcast for the British Textile Biennial with me, Amber Butchart. Throughout this series and an accompanying exhibition at the Howarth Art Gallery, I am exploring movement, migration and making through cloth, using pieces found in the Gawthorpe Textile Collection to tell the stories behind what we wear. Focusing on four fabrics, silk, linen, wool and cotton, I'm investigating the global strands of local stories that link Lancashire, at the heart of the textile industry in Britain, to areas throughout Europe, Asia, Africa and the Americas. Cotton can tell a multitude of stories that link Britain to the rest of the globe. And some of these stories are encapsulated in a swatch of fabric in the collection at Gawthorpe. Burgundy cotton with characteristic cracked white lettering, it reads, Guaranteed Wax, Made in England. This is a sample from a company called ABC Wax, which has links to Greater Manchester to this day. Now bear with me while I give a potted history of the company. It begins with a print works which opened in the town of Hyde in the early 19th century. In 1908, they began to produce the exact kind of fabric we see here. Imitation batik fabrics, which had in previous centuries been based on Indonesian designs. These wax fabrics were intended for export to West Africa. At the end of the 19th century, the company became part of the Calico Printers Association, in the early 1990s, ABC Wax was bought by a company based in Hong Kong, and in 2007, production was transferred to Akasombo Textiles Limited in Ghana. The name ABC comes from a Swiss company which was set up in the 19th century to manufacture and trade Madras cloth from India to the West African coast. This company had been bought by the Calico Printers Association in 1959. Now this somewhat confusing and convoluted company history is emblematic of the threads of commerce and imperialism that were spun around the globe from European traders and factories, some of which I'll be unpicking in this episode. The legacy of the cotton industry in Lancashire and around the northern mill towns is evident in places like Howarth Art Gallery, a former mill owner's house. I spoke to Gillian Berry, the manager at Howarth Art Gallery, and I asked her about the history of the building. Howarth Art Gallery was formerly the home of brother and sister William and Anne Howarth, who had the house built for their retirement in 1909. The house was designed by the architect Walter Briley. He was an arts and crafts architect and he was known as the Luchans of the North. The gardens were designed by the arch landscape architect uh, Simeon Marshall. The house was only to be a home for a short period. William passed away only three years after he moved in and Anne passed away in 1920. Anne, along with her brother's wishes, left their home, Ollintale, to the people of Accrington to be used as an art gallery, museum and public park. In 1921, the house was opened as our art gallery after the generous gift 
the brother and sister gave to their hometown. What else can people see if they visit the Haworth Art Gallery today? In 2016, our derelict stables and motorhouse were converted into artist studios whilst maintaining their significant heritage. They became comfortable and usable studios for a range of artists and craftspeople. So we have artists there who are illustrators, we have ceramicists, we have painters, and these stables are open to the public to go in and visit. And there is also a small display about the heritage of the stables there. In the gallery, one of the most famous things we have is a world-class collection of Tiffany glass which was brought to the gallery by an Accrington man called Joseph Briggs. Joseph Briggs was an apprentice engraver who went over, immigrated over to New York, and there he became a worker at Tiffany Studios. He started as an errand boy and ended up as the president of Louis Comfort Tiffany's Studios. And then he gave the town the collection of Tiffany glass. And like many people in the area, the Howarths were involved in the cotton industry? William's involvement in the cotton industry was through the family business Thomas Howarth and Son Limited. William inherited two mills from his father, Thomas Howarth, who started the business as a working class man who had trained as an engraver at Broad Oak Printing Company in Accrington. The mills were Melbourne Mill and Skatecliffe Mill. For a short period prior to his father's death, Willow's Mill was also a part of the family business. All of the mills were weaving sheds, but Skatecliffe Mill was also a spinning shed. At the business's height in 1883, they employed 571 people in the mills. William and his father were both regarded as forward-thinking people who paid their people well and had good conditions in the factories. There was even a report by an American, Dr. Wayland, who went to review the working conditions at the mill and reported back that the conditions were clean, healthy, free of dust, and that the workers all received good pay. On the downside, although normal at the time, children under 10 were also employed there. What evidence of the cotton industry do we see at Haworth in the building itself? So we see evidence of the cotton industry in the stained glass windows. Firstly, we see it in a band of coat of arms, where we've got coat of arms for Accrington. And in the coat of arms for Accrington is a shuttle which represents the weaving industry. And we also see it in an image of printed cotton. Printed cotton is perhaps what the town was best known for. And they imported or exported, I should say, cotton, world printed cotton worldwide. Above and below the coats of arms, there are repeated hand-painted references to the cotton industry and these simple images painted in yellow and black reveal spinning wheels 
images of cotton, flax, early designs for printed cotton and ships. Could you tell me about the 1878 cotton strike? The 1878 cotton strike came about because of a slump in cotton manufacturing in the late 1870s. And it resulted in the mills restricting working hours, pay cuts, job losses, and even the closure of mills. When a further 10% pay cut was agreed by the Cotton Masters Association, the workers in Accrington joined forces with the cotton strike of 1878. As the workers became hungry, their actions stepped up. Mill owners' homes were vandalised, and even three men were shot and wounded locally. The strike eventually failed after a long nine-week battle. However, this led to a restructure of the North East Lancashire Amalgamated Weavers Association, an early trade union movement. This was led by a local man named Thomas Bertwistle, who helped introduce paying death benefits to members and representing them in disputes relating to work stoppages, unfair treatment, fines, and the breakdown of machinery. Remarkably, during the 1878 strike, the family home of the Howards was the only mill owner's home that was not vandalised by the striking workers, evidence of how well the Howards were regarded as employers in the town. How important was the cotton industry for Lancashire? The cotton industry was important for Lancashire and in particular for Accrington and its surrounding towns. Locally, the creation of turkey red dye and later khaki dye and the development and mechanisation of calico printing all enabled the globalisation of the textile industry. With industrialisation came improvements in transport, including the Leeds-Liverpool Canal passing through the area, railway links and new roads being built, particularly Blackburn Road and Manchester Road, which meant goods could be transported in and out of the town. All of this led to Accrington's population increasing from 3,266 in 1811 to 45,029 in 1911, an incredible increase of 1,379%. This showed how many people migrated to the area for work. Accrington's physical environment also changed. The building of rows and rows of stone-faced terrace houses and along with these came grander buildings such as churches, schools, the Peel Institute, which is now the town hall, a grand market hall, theatres and public houses. Do we find cotton in Lancashire before the Industrial Revolution? So cotton did come to Lancashire prior to the Industrial Revolution, inspiring Lancastrians such as John Kay of Berry to invent the flying shuttle in 1833. Weaving was transformed by the invention. Wider cloths could be made, driving up the demand for cotton. This new industry prospered from the decline of the domestic wool industry, who let, which left a surplus of skilled workers who had transferable skills that could be used in the cotton mills. Lancashire, also offered the ideal 
location for cotton factories in many respects. Raw cotton, which came from places like Turkey, the Middle East, and the southern states of America, could easily enter Lancashire via the port in Liverpool, and from there on onwards with newly created transport links that transported the cotton inland to the cotton towns. Once the raw cotton arrived in Lancashire, the climate, which was often damp and cold, prevented the cotton fibres from splitting in the various manufacturing processes. The cotton mills were dependent on running water as a source of power, and water that came from the nearby Pennine Hills was ideal for this, particularly because it was soft water and it could be used to wash the cotton. As technology progressed, coal was also abundant in Lancashire, and this meant that the mills relied more on steam power rather than water power, and there was still fuel available. The confluence of all these factors contributed to Lancashire's role in the Industrial Revolution. And you mentioned that raw cotton, uh, one, of the, one of the areas it comes from is the southern states of America. Um, are you able to talk about the links between Lancashire cotton and these plantations and the enslavement of Africans? So within the stained glass windows of Howard's Art Gallery, there are images of ships. And ships were used for in the importation of the raw cotton and also for the exportation of the finished product. But also we have to remember that in these ships that slaves were transported from Africa through to the Caribbean and the southern states of America where they were put onto cotton plantations and used as slaves to grow cotton and pick it for the cotton industry in this country. And even though slavery was abolished in 1865, the freed slaves' conditions were no better than they were before. Often, they were worse. And we have to remember this, that all of this happened within the Industrial Revolution and Lancashire's contribution to the cotton industry. The cotton plantations of the American South, harvested by enslaved labourers taken from Africa, provided the raw material that fuelled the Industrial Revolution in Britain, creating huge amounts of wealth for both slave owners and factory owners. The legacy of this is all around us, from country houses to art galleries and public statues. Artist and professor Labena Hamid has drawn on these textile histories in her work. Hello, my name is Lubaina Hamid. Um, I'm a painter, sometimes I'm a writer and a curator, um, and also I'm the Professor of Contemporary Art at the University of Central Lancashire. Lubaina began by explaining the stories that textiles can tell. I think textiles can tell powerful stories because they are of the everyday. You know, they are something that we wear every day. They're something that, you know, a flag is made of textiles. Um, a shirt is made of textile. A dress 
a handkerchief. So something very personal and very close to you, um, uh, you know, um, or something personal like a quilt that's very much in the past was perhaps made by women for other women when they were getting married. So it can be very personal or it can be very public, like a flag or a union banner or the ribbon on a medal, you know, or it can be something that's very um, special, uh, like a, somebody's best suit that they would wear for a funeral or somebody's wedding dress. I think also mostly textiles are worn close to the body so they they communicate between themselves the clothes on my body communicating with the clothes on yours but also they feel our heat and they make us warm so i think i sort of think of textiles as language and of if you like a friend and I think of textiles in the same way as I think of architecture. Our bodies kind of live inside textiles. We have to feel comfortable or feel special or feel different. But it's about our feelings and about our personality, our, our identity. The thing about textiles is that they are very, very special, but at the same time, a very ordinary, everyday thing. Can you please talk me through where you're at with the piece that you're creating for the textile biennial that responds to the Gawthorpe textile collection? Yeah, the piece I'm uh, making at the moment um, that responds to the Gawthorpe Hall um, collection as part of the uh, textile biennial is kind of a, it's kind of wild, really. Um, and to some degree, it won't be itself until it's in its place in the barn. So it's made up of sort of 80 to 100 lengths of fabric in all a whole multitude of colours um, that are what is loosely known as Dutch wax fabric. So they're African designs in inverted commas, but made um, and made for the African market, but they're actually made, printed in the Netherlands. So the whole of the barn will be filled with this fabric kind of hanging and twisting and turning um, and appearing to move through the space. I suppose the piece itself um, reflects the collection at Gawthorpe Hall in that it's, it's a textile piece, of course, um, but also it's sort of trying to fill a gap, perhaps. Um, clearly, those sorts of fabrics were not collected, but why should they be? They're not uh, traditional, um, woven, um, expensive things. They're very much the sort of fabric that you would make maybe a beautiful dress, but a beautiful dress for, for the everyday. So I'm not so much filling in a gap in Gawthorpe's collection as filling in a gap in the history of textiles 
in the north of England. Can you tell me about the various work you do and the research projects that you run as a professor at the University for Central Lancashire? I am the, uh, the director, the founder of the Making Histories Visible project, which in its first, you know, its first sort of few years was simply a collection of letters, brochures, invitations, ephemera around exhibitions that uh, black women artists had in the early 1980s, all over the country, but mostly in London. So everything in the early sort of part of the archive referred to that. And then I decided to add to it um, exhibition catalogues, uh, books, theory, art theory books around that that subject. Then I decided to add history books around um, African history, African literary history, um, uh, Caribbean politics and history and creativity. And then I started to add artworks to that. So there are artworks by Maud Salter, Sonia Boyce, Claudette Johnson, um, Gavin Yanches, George Hallett. Um, and it's, although that sounds all enormous, it, it takes up quite a sort of small, kind of friendly place um, in the university. And artists, scholars, funders, curators come by appointment uh, whenever they want to, whenever we can accommodate them, and spend, you know, maybe a day or two just looking through all that stuff. And it's quite an informal place in that we always wanted the sort of archive that artists would like, rather than something that strictly academics would like. So you can pick anything you like off the shelves. You can do it in any order you like. Um, it's all about talking as well. We have uh, display cases with um, brochures and catalogues in them, as well as shelf, bookshelves full of them. And we have um, vinyl. You can play Nina Simone or um, Gil Scott Heron while you're um, while you're looking at the stuff. So it's it's sort of like looking at things in your back bedroom rather than going to the library, because we always knew that that's what artists like. Uh, so that's that's really what I do, the main thing that I do. And uh, I um, this place is run by my colleague, uh, Christina Yene, who is a research fellow. And she's also the curator of the Casablanca Biennale. So it's very much turned from a kind of early history of what black women were doing in the 1980s in terms of uh, creativity into really a curating project. So Christine curates shows all over the world, um, uh, talks to young emerging artists. I tend to talk to the old artists that I've always talked to and initiate um, residency schemes with our print room here at UCLan which is Art Lab Contemporary Print Studios. So it's a sort of, um, Christina Yeni and I do things in a kind of completely different way on purpose. I'm about kind of maintaining something that's been going a long time and she's about looking to the future and 
changing and developing the idea. I really love the exploration of textiles in your work, and I would love to hear more about your piece Cotton.com from 2002 for Cube Gallery in Manchester, as it relates to the histories of Lancashire's textile industry workers and enslavement of African people in the Americas as well. So I would love you to talk a bit more about that piece. The piece Cotton.com was made in 2002 especially for the Cube Gallery in Manchester, is now in the Arts Council collection. Um, it's made up of a hundred square paintings, quite small, in old money, they're kind of eight inches by eight inches. I think that's maybe about 10 centimetres, something like that. Um, but uh, each of these uh, square paintings are black and white, and all of them are patterned. And I chose for the patterns, patterns really from all over the world, but mostly African patterns and what you might call English patterns from tiles or uh, wallpapers, that sort of thing. But instead of doing the kind of rich, intense sort of colour thing, I restricted them to either a black pattern on a white background or a white pattern on a black background. And they're painted in acrylics on, on canvas. And... When I first made these pieces, um, each painting had a text and each of the texts would be a little bit like an email or a text message from one person in Lancashire, in a factory in the 19th century, as if they were writing to a field slave in Carolina. And so... A text um, might read, um, my brother can't stop coughing because the dust has reached his lungs. And then the African, uh, African-American uh, slave would then reply with something like a text that said, um, my brother tried to escape yesterday, but he was caught by the dogs. So what I was trying to do in the making of this piece was to show that these two sets of people were in fact entrapped, if you like, in a bigger, a bigger narrative than their own. One was not more abused than the other. They were just abused for somebody else's profit equally relative to their circumstance. And I, I started to make this piece and I was very convinced that if that had been able to take place, these two sets of people would actually totally understand that they were not exploiting each other. They were the victims of this huge global industry. And it kind of reflects, at that time, the union bosses in Lancashire were writing letters, real letters, to Abraham Lincoln to say, we know that our cotton industry is forcing African-Americans, we would say now, or black people in America um, to be slaves. And we are prepared here in Lancashire to stop this industry if it will help you 
released these people from slavery. And it's the most extraordinary thing. It's the most extraordinary connection between people in Lancashire and people in America. And you can see the letters, you know, um, and in Manchester, I think it's just being dug up that square at the moment, but there's a square with a statue of Abraham Lincoln, and you can read the letters on the statue from the Union men in, in Lancashire. So it was all, the whole piece was about this connection. But I never showed the texts at all, uh, just the black and white paintings. And then one text uh, was car uh, sort of carved, a uh, long brass text, which read, let me get this right, um, it read, she looked like a painting by Murillo as she carried water for the Ho Gang just because she carried the bucket on her head. So it kind of refers to um, some reports uh, written by Englishmen who were inspectors of plantations and they went and you know, yeah, sort of made reports about the conditions that the slaves were in. So in the end, I, I didn't use the conversation. I tried to let the paintings be the conversation between one set of people and another. The ABC Wax sample in the collection at Gawthorpe shows us that even after slavery was abolished, cotton continued to play a key role in commerce and colonialism. But we also see stories around the globe of people repurposing cotton and using it as a tool of activism rather than oppression. Join me next time on the Cloth Cultures podcast when I'll be exploring the place of cotton and the drive for Indian independence from British rule and its place in the American civil rights movement. You can find out more about the British Textile Biennials commissions and programme of events on Twitter at Textile Biennial and on Facebook and Instagram at British Textile Biennial. See you next time. <laughs>